Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. On the podcast this week, I'm joined by my co-host and PNC member for Wales, Carolyn Middleton. Welcome back to the podcast, Carolyn. Thank you very much, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be part of this important podcast. In this episode, we're focusing on our brilliant nursing support workers across the UK and recognising the invaluable contributions they make to nursing teams in all settings as the RCN holds its annual Nursing Support Workers Day. We'll be talking with two special guests about the wide variety of roles that nursing support workers play, how this needs to be better recognised, and the importance of training and career development for this vital but often neglected element of the nursing workforce. We're delighted to be joined by Tara Johnson. Tara is a healthcare assistant working with children and young people at Torbay Hospital. Hello, Tara, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Hello. Great that you could join us. Tara, the 23rd of November is Nursing Support Workers Day. What does that day mean to you? It means we can show everyone who's a like healthcare assistant how amazing they're doing and actually give them the recognition to go, do you know what? Through everything that's happened recently, especially, you are amazing. You come in and you do give the best quality of care. And we're going to talk more about all of that, I'm sure, as we as we go on. Our second guest today is Richard Griffin, Professor of Healthcare Management at King's College London. Hello, Richard, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Hello, Carolyn. It's an absolute pleasure to be here today. I don't know whether you're aware, Richard, of the Nursing Support Worker um, Day that we hold at the RCN, but why do you think that the RCN and others should mark this special occasion? Yeah, I I am aware of it. I think it's fantastic. It's now in its third year. Um, I think, as as Tara said, actually, this is a real opportunity to shine a light on a really critical part of the NHS workforce, which may be in the past has not had quite as much attention as it deserves. So I think it's brilliant to have a day to celebrate. I think it's fantastic Royal College of Nursing is organising this. I'm really happy to be a small part of it as well. The nursing support workforce encompasses many roles with a really confusing array of titles, which include healthcare assistants, healthcare support workers, assistant practitioners, and in England, registered nursing associates. But whilst the job titles differ and there are some important distinctions between them, nursing support workers play a crucial part in the delivery of health and care services, working alongside registered nurses and as part of the wider multidisciplinary teams, which are critical to the delivery of high quality care and excellent outcomes for patients and the public across all settings. But even though those important roles are an integral part of many nursing teams, Their contributions to care can be misunderstood and not always given the recognition they deserve. So the RCN's Nursing Support Workers Day is an annual celebration in its third year, which aims to shine a light on these often hidden but essential members of the nursing workforce, people like Tara. So Tara, can you tell me a little bit about um, how your career started, how you became a healthcare assistant and what your current role involves? So... I originally started working with children and young people. I've kind of been all over the place. So I've done respite care, um, working with children in special needs schools, um, one-to-one care work, um, had had some time off with my kids. And then I really wanted to get involved in working 
within the hospital. So I started on the bank, going up to like the children wards, and then went to A and E and kind of found my place. It was one of the I kind of went there and the help like with the other healthcare workers, and I really felt like I fit in, and I kind of haven't left since. <laughs> so you're in emergency care in A and E. Yeah, I'm in A and E. Within A and E, I have joined our wellbeing buddy team, so I can support everyone else. Because we do, li- do we do work in a really stressful environment, and it's always nice to go. I'm here if you need me, even just to listen. And I've also do the learning disability champion in the department to make make sure that we do equal opportunities for everyone who comes in. So I've just got some sensory toys donated to the department. Done what we call a folder with all additional communication aids for children and young people. So we've got like. Macaton symbols we've got like the now and next boards we've got pictures with each procedure for the child and I'm a really big drive on our hospital passports to ensure that every child's individual needs are met I love it (laughs) (laughs) you can you can hear that Tara from the way that you talk about it what what's the best bit of the job for you I have a thing every time I go to work, which is as long as I make one person smile on my shift, I've done my job. And that's my like target per se each shift. And actually, you know, like the other day I was lying on the floor with a child with additional needs and managed to get a set of observations on him. And it was literally the best part of my shift because he came in really upset and anxious. I lied on the floor and we played Buzzy Bee with a thermometer And, you know, we were able to give him the best care by just adapting the environment to him. And it just felt amazing seeing him leave with a smile. Tara, you've taken on some additional responsibilities within your role. And you've told us a little bit already about your lead in terms of being the learning disabilities champion. Can you tell us a little bit more about being a learning disabilities champion and why it's so important to have um, people with that knowledge and understanding as part of the service at Torbay Hospital? So I originally spoke about it because I have family members with additional needs and I would bring them in and I'd be like, this just isn't working like they're getting very distressed or what if they had this or like you know a safe space to go and sit or my for example one of my family members if you give them a fidget toy so I then kind of thought actually rather than thinking about it I'm just gonna go and do it so I spoke to my line manager and she was so she was like that's fine so I went to the trust learning disability team and I said to them like I really want to improve this how can we make this better So with working with trust guidelines, I um, ensured that I followed everything we do, like getting all the symbols, asking to get some sensory stuff donated, you know, looking how we can adapt things for the children and young people who come in. And we do hospital passports. And I think it's almost like word of mouth, isn't it? The more people you tell, the more they'll then they will tell and you keep going like that putting notice boards up saying look we've got one in our waiting room like we've got a learning disability team you know use them they're here they're in the hospital I think they do from Monday to Friday and if not like there's some of us who have done additional training we're here you know if you need the support 
just come and grab us. I want to, one of the key things for me is trying to make it the best experience they could potentially have because it's traumatic coming to a new place and it's that you walk in, there's a busy waiting room, there's people you don't know. So I'm trying to make it so you've got more adaptability in that if they come in and they do like the hospital passport and we know one of the things they struggle with is sound, we can support them by going, oh, do we have a space they can go? How can we adapt it to make this more of a positive environment for them? That's great. It sounds like you've been very proactive indeed, Tara, in terms of of implementing those changes at at Torbay. Well done. Um, I understand that you have a a very particular approach when you're supporting teenagers and young adults. I wonder if you could tell us what's different then about, um, you know, when somebody's transitioning towards adulthood, how you might manage that situation in accident and emergency. So... I very much have an approach with the young people that come in of, I will say, you're in a safe environment. I'm not here to judge you and I'm not here to criticise you. What I want to do is support you the best way I can. And I feel that by actually saying to them, look, I'm going to be honest with you. And as you go into adult care, this is how things will change. And I very much am like, and this is how you will transition as you get older into adult care and make them very much aware of how things work. I will always say to a young person, everybody makes mistakes and that's okay. You know, nobody is built to be perfect. So how can we help you? From what I can do, like referral based or anything like that, how can I support you to ensure that you get the best care you possibly can? I'm very honest and will say to young people, you know, you don't get care like this. As you get into adult care, it changes and explain to them the changes so that they're ready for when they get there. Coming to Richard. Richard, you've studied the NHS and social care workforce for more than three decades, I understand, exploring workforce planning, job design, pay and reward and policy around both employment and and skills acquisition, covering a a wide range of issues which really impact on on the modern nursing profession, many of which we've discussed, we've covered on the podcast. Um, What would you say the biggest changes that you've seen, both positive and negative, affecting nursing the wider profession in in the past couple of decades so i think yeah absolutely i've been um i have been looking at this workforce for for three decades now and, and exclusively actually since since 2010 and i think um the biggest difference and i think actually you know the the nursing support workforce day illustrates this actually i think when when i started all those years ago 1991 i think it was um perhaps you know the attention that support workers got, um, the way the roles were deployed, the way they were valued, the ways they were always not always accepted, was really quite quite an issue. And I think there was lots of reasons about it. And maybe we can talk about that later in terms of how policy has developed towards this part of the workforce. But and you know, and, and I think some of that was was quite legitimate. Sometimes roles have been created perhaps for the wrong reason in, in the past, and I think there was quite justifiable concerns around safety. 
around um, skill mix, for example. There's been a real sea change. I mean, there are issues. Uh, you talked about titles. And I think actually that's a brilliant way of um, getting into actually some of these issues because there are so many titles and it does matter, doesn't it, what we call people in the NHS. And it's not just an issue for support workers. I totally um, understand that. But we... I did a bit of work in uh, mental health, for example, um, looking at nursing HCAs working in mental health services um, alongside the Nuffield Trust, and they found 96 different titles. And that's confusing for support workers. It's confusing for registered staff. It's confusing for service users. So that's a kind of issue that's endured. And that, that's there because a lot of, probably with the exception of nursing associates, a lot of the way that support workers are recruited, how they're described, their scope of practice, the banding is determined locally, which means you get that variation. You don't get the standardisation, which means you can have fantastic practice, but actually sometimes we're not always getting the best out of this workforce. More positively, though, and it really, I mean, it has been a massive change. I think particularly over the last decade, probably post-Cavendish Review, which is nearly 10 years ago, actually, yeah, we really have seen, and I think Tara is, you know, what, what Tara, what you've just described, actually, in terms of the work you do, illustrates how important this workforce is, the difference it makes to service users and actually and to registered staff. So for me, it's been the biggest change, the biggest positive change that I think has been that appreciation, the recognition that is one team supporting patients, supporting service users and the value of that team. And I think everyone's played a part of that, including the RCN uh, and other professional bodies. So we've got a way to go still, I will say. But actually, I think that's the most positive thing. The fact we're having this podcast, actually, is a beautiful example, isn't it, actually, of that this is you know now something that we, we do talk about and celebrate because of the difference it makes. Richard, earlier this year, you pu- published a book, and the title of that book is Healthcare Support Workers, A Practical Guide for Training and Development. Why do you think this book is so needed? I think, yeah, thank, thank you. I, I wrote the book because I think, such a book doesn't exist. And I've tried to do two things in it. One, I've tried to look back and say, actually, how have we got to the situation that we're in? Uh, so how is it that actually, almost from before the NHS NHS was created, some of the issues we, we still talk about have been there. Why is that? Why why have support workers sometimes struggled to access education? Why have they sometimes struggled in terms of consistency around job design? So what what is that? What's the reason for that? And then recognising um, the great strides that have been made over the last uh, decade or so, how can we get the best out of this workforce? What I've tried to do is take an end-to-end approach. So it starts with how do we actually recruit people? Where's the future support workforce? Where are we going to find the future Taras to be in services and, and contribute in the way that, that she and so many of our colleagues do? So where can we look um, where are some of the places we perhaps don't always look, for example, colleges, people who may experience barriers actually to employment, like people with uh, learning disabilities and differences. So it starts there and then it moves to people being the best they can when they're in work and right up to those people who want to progress into to pre-reg. So I've tried to be practical, but actually, you know, the key message to this book is actually this workforce matters. And I, I very passionately, firstly, believe, and I've seen it myself, actually, in terms of my own experience of the NHS, the difference that support workers do make. But I passionately believe we won't be able to deal with the challenges that the NHS faces if we don't invest in this workforce. It's not the only answers. There's lots of things we need to do, like address pay, for example. But Actually, we've got this fantastic resource in the workforce we don't always make the most of. If we can develop them, if we can invest in them, in people like Tar, then actually some of those challenges that everybody is facing in terms of demand 
um, can be addressed. So I'm hoping the book does two things. It gives some practical advice about how you deal with some of these long-standing issues. And we, I do draw on research. So I try to make it as evidence-based as possible, but as accessible as possible, because I didn't want this to be an academic book. I wanted it to be useful to people in the field. But also there's a message behind it as well, which is actually, you know, now is the time to invest because all the bits we need are there. We've just got to mobilise that. So any bit we need, I think of it like a jigsaw, the piece is there, we've just got to put it together. So that's the main the main reason I wrote the book. I thought the time is right, it's 10 years after Cavendish, we are seeing lots of progress. And I suppose it's part of that kind of evolution of the role that we can actually be at a point where we can hopefully now go to the next level. Richard, you referred to the um, Cavendish review, just and the, it'll be 10 years. Just for um, some of our listeners who may not know what the Cavendish Review was and, and a little bit about some headline findings, I think you you were a, a member of the review. Um, yes. Perhaps you could just give us a very brief sort of snapshot of what it was and what it said, I guess. Yes, of course. So um, following the Francis inquiry to the events that occurred at Midstaff's uh, hospitals, the very tragic events that occurred there, the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron. So one of the recommendations of Robert Francis was that actually support workers, healthcare assistants, there were issues they faced. He made the point actually at that time that if you went to a hospital, uh, the security guard who might be on the door or the taxi driver who drove you to the hospital actually might have had uh, or be required to have more qualifications than a healthcare support worker did. Um, So he he identified a number of issues, including titles that should be addressed. And he wasn't actually the first person to do that. It was a report a little bit earlier in 2006 that did the same. What the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, did was appoint Camilla Cavendish, uh, who at that point was a journalist with The Times, to undertake a dedicated review of nursing healthcare support workers in health and social care. She did very rapidly, um, but I think she did a fantastic job. And I was lucky enough to be be one of the persons who advised her on that report. But she went out, she talked to lots of people, lots of support workers, lots of trusts, uh, lots of care homes, lots of other organisations like the armed forces to see how they invested in their equivalents um, to support workforce. She identified a number of the issues that we've we've been talking about, but also came up with a number of recommendations, which... Um, the only one, unfortunately, that was mandated at the time was the care certificate, which if you're newly employed, patient-facing uh, support work in health and social care, you should complete within uh, the first three months of your employment. She, but she made other recommendations, as Lord Willis did a couple of years later for nursing, around titles, around access. Cowlin was talking about access to education, how important it is. Uh, she pointed out support workers don't always have access to occupationally relevant education. They are not always clear about how they can progress their careers, um, whether they want to progress into pre-reg or whether they want to actually be the best they can as support workers, and also the challenges they face if they do want to progress into pre-reg. So the Cavendish Review is a you know, really significant event. It is nearly 10 years since it was um, produced. I'd recommend listeners to read it. Actually, it's not a long report. It's very accessible. Sadly, it still resonates to some extent with today. And as I say, it wasn't. Most of the recommendations weren't mandated, though good things have come from it. Sarah, can I just pick up with you? Thinking about some of those um, possible barriers or challenges, whatever you'd like to refer to them as, um, that Richard's been describing. So that difficulty in accessing education, blurring of boundaries around roles, titles, etc. What has been your experience? Do you recognise some of those barriers in your practice or in the people that are around you? We do recognise it. Like I'm quite lucky in when I've gone into this job, I've had a lot of my qualifications already. 
So I've been quite lucky in the respect of where I've wanted to be. I'm kind of at at present, whereas I've seen my colleagues, like we've got an education team. Um, so them going through the education team, you know, a lot of them having to redo certain things to be able to progress. I think the other thing is it's a human factor of home life and then what making sure you have a happy home work-life balance and not spending all your home life then studying to then progress in your career so I've seen like some struggles from others I think yeah it, it's difficult because when you are short-staffed there has been times where actually going onto the floor ensuring your patient's care is more important than in getting newer skills so like your mandatory training you go to all the time and that's secure Whereas additional bits, there are times where actually you could be pulled because patient care is more important. It's a real difficult balance, isn't it? To, yeah. to particularly, as you say, at, at times when you know we can see shortages in the workforce, to make sure that we are giving people the time and the space for development and providing the the critical care that that our our patients need. And I think that's a a challenge that's shared by registered nurses, nursing support workers, and and certainly all members of the you know of allied health professionals all those working in hospitals really don't know richard the sort of current pressures that uh, um in the particularly thinking about the nhs with, with the current pressures and some of the changes that you've identified as needing to be made i think it's a very difficult environment in which to make them but equally a, a critical environment in which to make them yeah, it is. It is. And of course, if, you know, if those Cavendish recommendations that actually have been implemented 10 years ago, we may not have been in the situation in terms of capacity and capability to such an extent that we are now. And obviously, we are at unprecedented mm. times, um, particularly because of the impact of COVID on services, but other, other issues as well. And yes, you know, the pressures of day to day are real and do need to be addressed. In saying that, you know, clearly investing in staff's skills, investing in their knowledge does make a difference. It does improve things for everybody. So I think, yeah, there's a real issue around CPD funding. There's apprenticeships which are fantastic and and for nursing HCIs particularly, nursing support workers, you know, some great apprenticeships at all levels available to them. But we don't have CPD funding for support workers. And that seems to me to be a real problem. I don't understand why we don't have um, that for them because actually it's not always about going on an 18 months course and doing formal education there's lots of other ways we can learn which can be worked around some of those workplace pressures so I think there's good things happening I do see work around cancer services and um, for nursing support works for example where there's going to be more e-learning developed nationally um, which is free and accessible and can be fitted around people's pressures um, but yeah absolutely recognize the challenge that the service is in but actually if we don't invest in staff actually how we're going to meet those pressures and if we really do need to kind of look at how we're going to support people to be the best they can and actually deal deal with some of the pressures they're under at the moment as well. In your book as you say you you take this end, an end-to-end approach where you start sort of thinking about recruitment and then moving on you you touch just briefly on you know where we should be looking to recruit particularly thinking about that nursing support worker workforce and looking in places where we might not have done previously. Do you want to just say a bit more about that? It's interesting. So I, I, I did a piece of work, for example, around so there's, there's tens and tens of thousands of young people in colleges studying health and social care related 
courses, technical levels, particularly at the moment. They're, they're still relatively new, but there are beginning to be students doing technical levels. So they're equivalent to A-levels, but they're vocationally focused, so they're all about health skills. And what I found, I did a little bit of research around um, the extent to which those students engage with and um, go on to actually work in health or social care. And it's less than a quarter. So it's a real kind of disconnect. And I think there's something about the NHS not necessarily looking at places like colleges, at um, other groups as well, though. So, for example, people who may be long term unemployed, they may have autism. Um, I've done lots of work in northwest London, bringing in individuals, young people with special education needs and disabilities through support internships, for example. You know, and it's really good news. It's not just good news for those young people who might face you know, long term unemployment with real kind of health impacts actually on them. But actually, it's good news for the NHS. What you get are fantastic employees who are very loyal and do a really great job. So there are groups I think the NHS hasn't traditionally looked to. Career changes, adult career changes, people who you know, maybe want to move into a different career. If you're in teaching or if you want to move into teaching, you may be working anywhere, actually, but you think I might want to do something different. Teaching is something I might be interested in. There are courses, there are programs, there are ways to move, there are ways in which the skills you've acquired in whatever role you were doing previously can be taken into account to help you move into teaching. If you suddenly decide you want to be a nurse and support worker or a nurse, you know, it's really difficult, I think, for people outside the NHS to really try to work out the routes in. They don't know about apprenticeships, they don't know about lots of different routes. So I think there's a real opportunity. We do need to think about where the future workforce is going to come from. I think there's great value in recruiting locally. Um, because you know workforces that reflect their local populations have better health outcomes they also tend to be more diverse as well so there's those advantages and actually you know local people understand some of the pressures don't they I, I work and live in London there are real pressures in London around costs for example housing costs or transport so if you're recruiting people locally they understand that and they're more likely to stay so I think it is I think the NHS generally I don't think just for support workers actually I think we need to look at some of those places we've not looked at before and I think there are potentially huge benefits if we do do so and things like you know, colleges or institutions really the NHS should be working much more closely with it's beginning to happen but I think there's still more that could be done. And I guess that's that kind of concept around the NHS as being really a, an anchor institution in yeah. terms of how both for employment, but also for education and, and training. I think that's absolutely right. I think the NHS has often seen itself as the place you go if you're ill rather than actually, you know, also, as you say, not only one of, you know, quite often the biggest employer locally, but actually also the biggest commissioner of education and training. You know, it, it, that anchor role, the place the NHS plays in its local community is so important. Of course, this does feed through into health inequalities, population health as well. So there's a service benefit in thinking about some of those groups that maybe are excluded uh, from employment, for example, and helping them into work. So absolutely right. I think that focus on the anchor role, which is relatively recent uh, and new to the NHS, but not to other organisations, is really, really welcome. Richard, the focus of your book was very much on the NHS, and we've talked quite a bit with um, over the last few questions about the NHS. But of course, there are nursing support workers in the independent sector and working across social care. Do you think we were talking earlier about some of those barriers, such as um, difficulties accessing education, the role design, very much sort of local quality checks rather than there being sort of systems across the UK to ensure that that the standards are maintained. 
do you think that outside of the NHS, the same kind of barriers are experienced? Certainly in terms of social care, I think we, we, we know these, if anything, is actually the situation is, is worse because we know the funding pressures that social care are under. We know career structures can be a lot flatter in social care than they are in the NHS. And we certainly know things like pay can be a lot lower as well. So access, I think, you know, the challenge is if you're a care home in terms of releasing staff is even greater than it can be in the NHS. So going back to Cavendish, she was, she was very clear, and I think the situation is the same, that you know, we do need to think very particularly about social care and how we can support nursing HCAs and others in social care to access education, to think about the roles and responsibilities they can undertake safely and effectively, think how they can develop their careers uh, within social care so they don't have to leave to, to, to develop their careers or move into, into management roles that they might be less interested in than carrying on a kind of frontline staff. And I've been involved for many years in NHS workforce. I've been talking about um, integration through all that that period. I hope the developments in England of ICBs and initiatives in, in the countries as well around integrating health and social care will give an opportunity to, to look at some of these issues. I think there are issues in primary care as well, actually, um, which obviously GPs don't have to follow agenda for change, for example. Mm. Uh, we know some of those problems that we, we've talked about can be actually worse in general practice and we know the pressures on primary care so it's another area where it makes massive sense to invest in this workforce but that isn't always the case i think the independent sector for mine i've limited experience of working uh, and looking at the independent sector but my my feel is actually it's better in the independent sector they're more recognized career structures there's greater recognition of uh, some of the issues that perhaps the nhs needs to know more about in terms of work-life balance that tara was talking about earlier but also investing in their staff to ensure they do have the occupationally relevant knowledge to to do um, the best they can and work at the top of their scope of practice. So I think it's a bit of a mixed picture, but we do know there are real issues with, with social care, don't we? And there's no there's no escaping that, and that's part of a bigger structural problem we have with, with social care, which does need to be addressed. And I think it does have to be addressed because if we don't and we do start bringing integration further forward then there's a real risk isn't there that people say well actually why why continue to work for the minimum wage in social care when I can work uh, in the NHS for, for a higher wage and I've actually seen that myself when we try to bring services together it's very understandable so we do need to address one thing the book says is you can't do any of this in isolation you know we need to look at this as a whole I call it a meta problem which is kind of a fancy name just means it's a lot of problems so we could do lots of great stuff by looking at individual things like apprenticeships and the NHS can transfer its apprenticeship levy uh, to social care and that does happen that's great and that will help social care train their staff but that in and of itself won't solve the problem we can standardize titles and we really should try to do that well that's harder said than done actually when you try to get consensus on what we should call people but that alone won't, won't solve it. So we do need to look at all of this, including how we treat people in the NHS and how we pay them as well. Just picking up on, on one point there, uh, standardisation and consistency, and, and you mentioned titles now and a little earlier, and I think you said that there were 94 or 96 different titles that you'd come across. Are there any other really key consistency issues that you have come across in relation to the deployment of nursing support workers that might make a difference to service delivery um, and supporting patients, registered nurses and the wider team? Yeah, we know that because, again, this workforce, with the exception of nurse and associates, you know, have not been centrally planned. They've evolved 
over time, yes, healthcare assistants were introduced in the 90s as a recognised title. It was very, very little guidance. Assistant practitioners are the same. They were introduced 2004. But again, very little guidance. Really surprising if you look back and see how much central policy there has been right across professions, not just the nursing issue, but so little actual guidance about what these roles should do in terms of tasks and roles and responsibilities and the competencies that you would expect. And I, I think the work the professional bodies, I should say, have done around defining competencies is, is really, really welcome in scope of practice. So the simple result of that is that actually you can be a support worker essentially doing the same job. You might even be in the same trust, actually, but on one ward, you may be able to do task X, but on the other ward, you won't be able to do it. And there's no real rationale for that. And I think, again, in England... Um, and I think some of the work, particularly in Wales, actually around trying to define nationally uh, competencies and entry requirements is really, really welcome. And the work in Scotland that's underway as well in terms of support works and trying to define what's required at a national level. But hopefully by systems coming together and comparing job descriptions, I, I spend, it's a bit sad really, but I spend some time looking at NHS uh, jobs and adverts for support workers and yeah, I'd, I'd say to your, your listeners, if you have a bit of time, you know, just just look at nursing HCAs, look at the top five for, let's say, a BAM free role, and just look at the difference in terms of entry requirements, in terms of qualifications, in terms of experience, and then some of the difference within a you know single occupation or single area. And that's not good news for anybody. It means support workers, and this this finding keeps coming up in research, can be very frustrated because they know they can do more if they were allowed to do more and supported to do more and trained to do more. But it also means services aren't getting the best out of support workers. So I think the key issue is actually this scope of practice and being able to work safely. And, you know, safety is absolutely critical. It's absolutely essential that the appropriate tasks are delegated, that people are appropriately supervised. This is not about replacing registered nurses. This is about saying this is what we expect a ban free to be able to do safely after they've been trained and making sure you have to an adult ward, wherever they are, if they're working with learning disabilities, wherever they are, cancer services, this is what you expect your support worker to be able to do. And everybody has the chance to do that. And that will boost capacity. And I think it will make much more rewarding jobs for support workers as well. So that's the key kind of issue of this lack of consistency. And I think, Richard, you make such an important point about, you know, this isn't about substitution of registered nurses. This is about how we use the nursing support workforce to enhance the care that people receive. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, if we, you know, fantastic developments around advanced clinical practice, for example, we need more advanced clinical practitioners, don't we? But we need to free up the time of registered staff. We need to make sure they're supported as well. And as part of that one team, you know, if we can get the best out of support workers, that should be good news for everybody. It's definitely not um, about replacing any time of a registered member. Tara, that sort of description that Richard's given there of, you know, on one ward, a nursing support worker can do one thing and on another ward, they can't. Or is that something that you sort of hear from your own experience or see in, in your own institution? When I first started, it it very much used to be, so for example, like I, I've i done training for like a phlebotomy level, so I can do your cannulation and venipuncture. So if I went on a ward, I couldn't do it, but in the department I could. So we then started asking the questions like actually we went to our education team and went actually 
like free trust I can do it here so can I do it there and from the very so I've been in the trust four years so that's when I first got in like that trust now I can use my skills wherever I go and actually I make it I suppose I'm very vocal in the fact I'll I'll say just so you're aware I do have these additional skills that I can support you with so I make the nurses aware that actually I do do um, cannulation and venipuncture. I can do ECGs, then like wound, aseptic wound care. You know, I make them aware I can do all this sort of stuff because actually it's a massive support for them. And equally as much as the patient, you know, they get their care a bit quicker if they you've got that additional person who you know have those skills. It's really how we make the most of the skills that people have, but and do that as Richard, I think, has said it in a, you know, in a safe and an appropriate way. Richard, if we were looking forward to the role of the nursing support worker in the health and care services in 2030, what would it look like? I hope it will look. I think all these things we've been talking about. I think all what I see is this fantastic potential, you know, which in many, many places we're like, I think one of the, the things when you research, you tend to talk about the, the things that perhaps grab the headlines, like all those different titles, but actually there is loads of great things going on out there in terms of innovation, in terms of the way the support workers are valued, in terms of the contribution they make. And I think any of us have used, as I said earlier, the NHS have seen that first, first hand. But someone described it to me as kind of islands of excellence. So I think what I, what I hope is we no longer have islands of excellence. We just have excellence everywhere. I hope governments do sensible things like actually ensure there is CPD funding. I mean, it's, 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 it is bizarre to me that we don't have that for this significant chunk of the workforce, which in many settings are the key contact. If you go into a hospital, the person you're most likely to see actually is probably a support worker. Um, and I, you know, again, I've seen that myself when, when relatives of mine have had to have care. It's been the support worker that's been sitting with them. It's the support worker that's talking to us about what's going on. So I hope in 2030, I hope actually we don't see, you know, I hope things like apprenticeships are still here because I think we've seen a lot of policy change. We think we have a lot of policy change in the NHS and we do. We have even more and further in vocational education. So I think things like apprenticeship, we need some stability. So I think you know, apprenticeships are fantastic and they're there at every level and they're a career ladder. So I hope they they actually are still there in 2030. I hope leaders, whatever government we have in the future, I hope those leaders from the Secretary of State downwards vocally recognises this workforce. I don't think we see enough of that in policy documents and policy statements. So I'd like to see that kind of leadership, so the support workers. It's interesting, actually. It's We, we found, again, it's a consistent finding that support workers feel valued in their workplace but they don't think the NHS values the workforce so there's something about actually that feeling that the NHS really does care about support workers I think there's been good stuff Ruth May's healthcare support worker campaign has been great the work at the colleges has said it's been fantastic so what I hope is we have some stability around the things that are working that we don't have to change them again we do need investment that will pay you know the return on investment will be more than worth it and I hope that support workers everywhere feel not only that their employers and colleagues value them but the NHS as a whole values them and if we could be there I can retire a happy man. (laughs) Sarah if we were to invite you back to celebrate Nursing Support Workers Day in 2030 what would be the main thing that you would want us to be celebrating? Every healthcare support worker knowing not just in-house but across the board how valued they are 
like everybody knowing, like um, Richard has said, not just internally, but externally, everybody going, look, we're doing an incredible job and thank you for what you are doing. When I first came into this role, the amount of skills and training and support I've got to get to where I am now and the amount I've achieved with that support is absolutely incredible. If you asked me when I first started in this job, if three and a half years down the line, I'd be doing like being part of our well-being team, doing all the learning disability work. And like, I've just become one of our mental health first aiders. Like they've put me through training for all of this. Like I would have gone, no, I wouldn't be doing that in a few years time, but I am. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Like look at all the extra skills I've now got that I can give to others. And I just think, everyone does just an incredible job like let's just show everyone that they do an incredible job i think that's a great place for us to finish our uh, podcast for today we'll be back soon but for now many thanks to our special guests uh, tara johnson thank you tara thank you for having me and professor richard griffin thank you it's a pleasure and my co-host carolyn middleton Thanks very much, Rachel. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.